Romans 12:1 says, "Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship." Romans 12 marks a turning point in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters are taken up with God's love for us. Despite the fact that all of us are sinners, despite the fact that we have all gone our own way, that we all have disobeyed, that we all have put our interests above the interests of others and above the interests of God, he's chosen to respond to our sin not with anger but with love. He's chosen to demonstrate his kindness to us. He's lavished his grace upon us. He's demonstrated his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's given us his spirit to live in our hearts. He's given us eternal life. He has sworn that there is nothing in all of creation that will ever separate us from the love that he has for us. Romans 12 marks a turning point because it is taken up with our heart's desire to want to be able to say thank you to God. After God has expressed his love for us and continues to express his love for us, Romans 12.1 is talking about how do we, in turn, express our love back to God. Not to earn his favor, not to try to establish a relationship, but simply because he's loved us we can love him in return. And Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice is God's love language when we give him something that is costly. Last week, we tried to flesh out that idea by looking at 1 Peter 2, which gave a very concrete way that you and I can offer to God a sacrifice that he's pleased with, and that is to participate in church, as difficult as it can be, when we choose to get involved and be part of what God is doing in this place or whatever church God takes us to be part of, that's a sacrifice that he's pleased with. This morning, we have another opportunity to kind of fill out and flesh out what does it look like to offer to God our bodies as a living sacrifice. And we're going to look at another passage of Scripture that sort of gives us a picture of what that looks like. So please, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. Genesis, chapter 22, it's page 16. If you're using one of the Bibles that you may have picked up on your way in, if you don't have one of those Bibles, pretty easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 22. This is a powerful story and a longer passage, but I want to read it to us uh, so that we might hear and visualize and see what God is saying to us this morning. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. 
He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Here Abraham is asked to give to God as a sacrifice something that he truly and desperately loves, his son Isaac. Now you and I will never be asked by God to physically sacrifice our children. However, God does regularly ask from us things that we love. Can be a job, can be your reputation, it can be a child, a child that the Lord takes home way too early or a child or a grandchild who walks away from the Lord and you have to simply turn that child over to God. It can be a marriage, a marriage that's not working out the way that you had envisioned or dreamed. It can even be the idea of being married. It could be your health. 
It could be a loved one. Whatever it is, there are things that God asks from us that we give to him as a sacrifice that we dearly and desperately love. And so whatever situation you might be in, I'd like to offer four observations from this story to speak into that situation. Number one, when God asks us to give him something that we love, he is testing us. Look in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, when you hear the language of testing, that has often negative connotations that go with it. This may be because of our modern educational system in which we're used to standardized tests like the MEEP test or the MSTEP or the ACT or the SAT or the GRE or the LSAT or whatever other letters you want to put together. And we're used to those tests which are designed not only to show what we know, but also how much we don't know. They're not designed for people to get 100% on. The same was true for me in my college experience. I was an engineer. And the way they had designed the academic uh, schedule there was such that the best you could sort of hope for on any exam was between 60 or 70%. The goal was, and I was graded on a curve, and so you could still get a good grade, but this was the way that, at least at the school I went to, the engineering professors were able to show not only how much you knew, but how much more there was to know that you didn't know yet. And we think of tests in that way that we're designed somehow to in part fail those tests. And so when you see the language that God tested Abraham, sometimes we import this modern conception of tests which are designed sometimes in part to show how much further we have to go. But that is the exact opposite of what God does when he tests us. God says, I will never test you on something that you will not be able to pass. Now, it doesn't mean that we always do pass. But it means that God has promised us that no testing, no trial will come into our life except those things that we are able to handle. And when we go through the testing, the Lord himself will be faithful to us to provide whatever we need to make it through. There's a reason why Abraham is not given this test earlier in his life. He wouldn't have passed. But look what happens here. He passes with flying colors. And God is overjoyed. God is not, when he tests you or I, if he asks for something difficult from us, our job, our reputation, a loved one, some situation that we are in that we are being asked to give God something that's close to our heart, God is not sitting back waiting for us to fail. He's only allowed that test in our lives because he knows that we can pass. Now again, sometimes we choose to try to do the thing in our own human power and sometimes we stumble 
But if there's something in your life that God is asking you to sacrifice to him, be encouraged. It may be harder than anything you've ever done before, but somehow you're ready for this. And somehow God is going to give you the strength to get through this. And that God is working actively for your success in this. And he wouldn't have allowed this test in your life if you weren't ready for it. Second observation from this passage. God asks for things that are near and dear to our hearts. Look in verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He doesn't just simply call Isaac by name. He gives three labels to this child. Your son, your only son, the one you love. First off, he calls him your son. This is Abraham's miracle baby. Abraham has waited all his life for this child. He's watched all his friends have kids and grandkids and probably great-grandkids. He's 100 years old. He has longed earnestly for a child. Long ago, he had given up hope, and then God made him a promise that he would give him a baby. This is that baby. Everything that Abraham had ever wanted is here in this baby. A woman named Marilyn Robinson wrote a book called Gilead. It's a novel. It's a really powerful novel. It's written in part uh, off the Abraham story. And in that novel, there's a protagonist. His name is John Ames, and he's a pastor. And he has a child late in life. He's 70 years old. And he's come to realize he's not going to be around when that child is older. And so he writes one long love letter to his child explaining who he is, his family's history, what he thinks about things, how he became a pastor, all of those things. He's writing it so that when the child grows up and the father has died, he can read it. And in that book, in a passage that means a lot to me personally, it has this statement. I'd never have believed I'd see a wife of mine doting on a child of mine. It still amazes me every time I think of it. I'm writing this in part to tell you that if you ever wonder what you've done in your life, and everyone does wonder sooner or later, you have been God's grace to me, a miracle, something more than a miracle. That's how Abraham feels about this child. This is his miracle baby. This is what he'd waited all his life for. When God gives us blessings, sometimes he asks for them back. Because there's always a danger that the blessing becomes an idol. He also calls him your only son. Now at first blush, this looks to be an untrue statement. 
We know Abraham has another son, Ishmael. But in this passage, the reason why I think it says your only son is because by Genesis 22, Ishmael is gone. Abraham has already been asked to allow him to go. Sarah, who's not his mom, doesn't want Ishmael around anymore, and so God says to Abraham, let him go. And so Abraham lets his grown-up son Ishmael leave, and so he only has one son that's left. But more than that, when it says your only son, what I think that refers to is the fact that Isaac is the child of promise. All the promises that God has made to Abraham, that he'll make him into a great nation, that he will bless him, that he will have descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore, all these promises are wrapped up in this one boy. And so in many ways, your only son means Isaac represents all of Abraham's hopes and dreams for the future. This is everything that he's wanted out of life. In fact, the entire Abraham story in many ways can be summed up in Abraham looking for this heir through whom God is going to bring all the promises that he's given. At first, it's his nephew Lot. Then he mentions Eleazar of Damascus, his servant, who he thinks is going to inherit his stuff. Then it's him taking matters into his own hands and giving birth to Ishmael through Hagar. But now finally, the miracle baby has arrived. And this child, Isaac, not only represents God's miracle in his life, this child is all his hopes and dreams for the future. This is everything that he has based his faith on. All the promises of God rest on this child. Sometimes, when God asks us for something, it can be our reputation or our career, or our hopes and dreams for how a marriage relationship was going to work, or the ideas that we had been counting on on what it would be like to be a grandparent interacting with our grandchildren, whatever it may be, sometimes God asks us for the thing that we have rested our future on. And he's also described, not only as your son, your only son, He's described as the boy whom you love. Just in case you and I might think that Abraham just simply looks at this boy as a miracle baby who is his key to a future that God has promised him, we're also reminded that this boy is his very heart, that he loves him desperately and totally and completely. And look at this child. He's an amazing child. It's not like Abraham prayed earnestly for a child and then he got a very troubled, wayward soul. He's got a boy who is compliant and obedient and devout, a worshiper of Yahweh. Abraham has everything he could ever ask for in this child. And God is telling us, look, I know that this is not just a miracle, baby, that all the hopes and promises rest on. This is your very heart. That Abraham loves this child beyond words. Third observation. 
When we sacrifice something that we love, when we give something that we love to God, God always, always, always provides. Look in verses 13 and 14. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now I like to imagine what this looks like in my mind. Abraham is asked by God to take his son Isaac to a very particular mountain that God is going to show him. It's not where they live. They've got to travel at least three days to get to that mountain. And I imagine that when God comes to Abraham wherever he is and meets him and says, come on a journey and I'm going to take you to a particular mountain, that at the very same time Abraham is telling that to uh, God is telling that to Abraham at the same time somewhere else in another area God has planted in the mind of a ram to go on a journey and that ram has no idea where it's going or why it's going there but it simply starts out in one direction meanwhile Abraham and Isaac are journeying in the opposite direction but toward the same point And in my mind, the way I picture this, Abraham and Isaac are going up one side of the mountain. And at the same time, on the other side of the mountain, this ram is wandering up this mountain, having no idea where it's going or why. And that when Abraham reaches the top of the mountain and he places Isaac on the altar and gets ready to sacrifice him at that very moment, that ram who's been journeying probably for three days as well, finds its horns caught in a thicket. And God has provided a substitute. Now the challenge is, is that God always provides on this mountain it will be provided. The problem is, the way I picture it in my mind, Abraham can't see the ram because the ram's on the other side of the mountain. It'd be nice if the ram walked up there with him. And when Isaac said, where is the offering? Well, it's here, but it's really right there. He's walking alongside of us. But that's just not the way it works. Is that the provision that God brings always arrives at just the right time. Not too soon. And not too late. And by faith, Abraham walks up that mountain knowing, I don't know what it's going to look like. But the Lord will provide something. Because he's a God who always provides. Now the provision of the ram is not the only provision on the mountain. In verse 10 it says, He reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Now, this passage means a lot to me personally. And so I have a painting of it uh, up in my office. You can, see, uh, you can see a copy of the painting here. It's a little hard to see because of the projectors and the lights and all of that. <clears throat> There's lots of different paintings of this scene. 
The reason why I chose this one is a reminder that God does ask us for things that are near and dear to our hearts, but that he always provides. There's a couple of things I like about this painting. In this version, Abraham is forcibly holding Isaac down, which is a reminder that this is a gut-wrenching, difficult, hard thing for him to do. I also like that in the painting, you've got the ram right there. You kind of see the ram to the right of Isaac's head. But probably the main reason why the painting is up there in my office is because the angel who is depicted to Abraham's left has grabbed hold of his hand. What that signifies to me is in the midst of this sacrifice, because Abraham's heart is willing, there is no way that God's going to let his hand slip. There is no way that God is going to allow Abraham to misunderstand what he's supposed to do in this moment. The other thing that God provides on that mountaintop is very clear direction from God. The fact that Abraham is up there, this is not the time for confusion. This is the time for God to speak very clearly into Abraham's heart and say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And I'm grateful that God not only provides the ram, but very clear instructions. There's no way Abraham is going to accidentally sacrifice this child. And whatever situation you're in, I know it's confusing when you're walking up the mountain. I know you have no idea that there's a ram coming up the other side. But I promise you on the word of God that if you are willing to give him what he's asked for from you, he will never, ever allow you to misunderstand what it is that's happening. You will not sacrifice something by accident. He will stay your hand. And that's part of the provision of God. A few years ago, the Lord asked me for something that was near and dear to my heart. He asked for my earthly father. Now, of course, when death comes, it's not like you could have stopped it. But even in the face of death, there's always a choice. Will I allow God to do this? Or will I continue to fight against him? With bitterness, with anger, with denial, with refusal to accept what's happened. In that case, God asked for my earthly father back in a way that was difficult and painful. But I'm here to testify that God provided in the most amazing ways energy to be able to go through and do a funeral that I had been dreading doing for a long time. A word from God that came right before my mom called to say, you're about to get the news. Don't worry, I'm with you. The opportunity for God to write the eulogy for my dad, and I just got to type out whatever it was he was saying. An amazing church. 
that loved us and cared for us through that whole process. An amazing wife who was strong and took care of all the stuff that I didn't have any energy or power and no one in my family had the ability to do either. I was reminded of that because this past Wednesday, my grandmother died. My mom's mom, she was 99 years old, a beautiful woman, amazing Christian. But yesterday we had her funeral in West Virginia. And I was reminded that God had provided a way for us to be able to get down, get to the funeral, to be able to get back here in time to be here this morning. When the Lord picked this passage, I knew this was, I had to preach this passage. The Lord provided my wife, a family in the church who took our kids so that Lisa and I could go together. So she could drive us home so she could listen to this sermon two or three times in the car on the way home while I practiced. (laughs) An opportunity for me to participate uh, in the funeral but not have to be the one who did all all of the work for it. And I'm reminded no matter what you go through, no matter what God asks for from you, he will always, always, always provide. Fourth observation. When we sacrifice something for God, he always gives us back more than we ever gave up. Verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Abraham offers to God this son that he loves desperately, totally, and completely. And God gives back to him a dynasty and descendants that can't even be counted. Children of Abraham. You and I, children of Abraham biological children and spiritual children beyond any reasonable count. Not only that, God gives him back Isaac, this boy that he loves. God never wanted Isaac dead. Never wanted Isaac dead. And even if Abraham had been fretting and worrying the whole way up, even if Abraham had doubted and stumbled, God was never going to allow that child to die. But in his heart, the Bible tells us that Abraham had come to grips with the fact that he was going to have to give his child to God. And so in a sense, received Isaac back from the dead even more God gave to Abraham a personal encounter with the living God this is the most significant event in Abraham's life and it happens in the midst of his sacrifice You see, the truth of the matter is, you and I will never be able to outgive God. There is nothing we could ever offer to God that would put God in our debt. 
Every single gift that is given to God is returned from God in greater proportion than we gave it in the first place. And I'm here to testify personally that after all of the sacrifices God has asked me to give, and he's asked for some hard ones, he has always, always, always given back far more than I ever gave to him. And please, this is not just an observation from a story or an observation from personal experience. It is the written promise of the Lord Jesus himself. In Mark 10, we've looked at this passage in the past, but look at it again with me. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, no one, not just Abraham, not just the pastor, you, anyone who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, meaning we gave up something near and dear to our heart, a career, a home, a job, a church, a loved one, something that was close to our heart. No one who has ever done that or ever will do that will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Well, a hundred times what? You mean just warm feelings? No. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution. This is not a health and wealth, prosperity sort of idea. This is a way to get richer and richer and richer. There's still trouble in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the sworn promise of Jesus. Everyone who gives to God something near and dear to their heart receives back from God a hundred times as much as we've given him. Now you say, but I, I had a child that died and I didn't receive him or her back. That's why the last part of that phrase is so important. And in the age to come, eternal life. And that's why it's so important that our story in Genesis 22 takes place on a very particular mountain in a very particular place. God has this all planned out, and so he sends Abraham to offer his son Isaac in a very particular location and says, I will show you the mountain when you get close. And the mountain on which Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice is identified as Mount Moriah. We know this mountain because later on, David, Abraham's descendants, one of his billions of descendants, David will see the angel of the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. We talked about this story a couple of weeks ago, that David counts the mighty men of Israel, the fighting men of Israel. He puts his trust in that, and so there is a plague sweeping through Israel, and David says the essence of sacrifice, I will not give the Lord something that costs me nothing. Aruna the Jebusite's threshing floor that David pays full price for, for the oxen and the cart and the, and the site. 
is on Mount Moriah. It's on this exact mountain where Abraham offered Isaac. David realizes that this is the mountain on which the Lord is seen and decides this must be the place where we need to build the temple of the Lord. His son Solomon builds that temple, but that's not the most significant thing that happens on this mountain. David's son, not Solomon, but Jesus, will at one point climb this same mountain. And there, our Heavenly Father will offer Jesus his son, his only son, the one that he loves as a sacrifice. And on that day, on this mountain, there was no substitute. There was no ram. There was no lamb because Jesus himself was the substitute. He was the one who was there so that God could give back to you and I, our children who die, so that God could give back to you and I those loved ones that we let go of in the Lord, so that God could give back to you and I for all of eternity far more than we've ever given to him. That those blessings that he's promised us are not just in this life. That they are forever and ever and ever. That's why on this mountain it will be provided. Because God has made a way so that he can give back to us far more than we can ever give to him. Which puts what's happening in Genesis 22 in context. God is not interested in Isaac dying. God is interested in Isaac having eternal life. God is not interested in hurting Abraham. God wants to bless Abraham. And all God needs Abraham to do is offer him something that he loves so that God can turn around and rip open heaven and pour out blessings beyond anything Abraham could have ever hoped for or dreamt of. And my friends, this is what God wants to do with you. And if you're here this morning and God is asking you to lay something on the altar, maybe you've lost your job, maybe you have a sick grandchild, maybe you have a loved one who's walked away from the Lord, maybe you have a loved one who God has taken home to be with him, maybe your reputation is being tarnished by people at work or people around you, maybe your life as a Christian is difficult because you're in a secular school or a secular environment, maybe God has asked you to let go of Calvary Church and move someplace else, let go of a comfortable life, things that you know of, and go follow him on a journey that's going to be difficult. But whatever it is he's asking for from you, it's not to harm you, it's to bless you. And it's because he wants to give you far more than you'll ever be able to give him. It's not easy. There's a reason why I cried my way through this passage. And for those of you who've ever given to the Lord, something that costs you, something that is near and dear to your heart, you would never read this passage without crying. But you will testify like I will testify. 
that God's unfailing love is your refuge and your strength and that God always, always provides. And God will not and is not allowing you to go through this without the promise that you will make it in his power. And that what God has waiting for you is an experience of his presence, his very clear voice. Now, he doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. He doesn't always tell us the things we way we want to hear them or when we want to hear them. But he always guides. What kind of shepherd wouldn't? And the promise that what is coming, both in this life and in the life to come, is far, far greater than anything we could ever offer to him. So the question for you this morning and the question for me this morning What is the thing or who is the person that God is asking you to lay down at the altar before him now? Is it a marriage that's not working out the way that you had hoped and dreamed marriage would be? Is it a child who's walked away from the Lord and you have to let go of wanting to control that situation? Is it a job that you had pinned your hopes and future dreams on? Is it your reputation? Is it your life here in Grand Rapids? Is it, is it the comfortable relationships that you have? What is that thing? Or who is that person that God is asking you to give to him? I want you to take just a few minutes in the quiet of your seat, we're not going to ask you to come forward, just in the quietness of your seat, between you and the Lord, ask the Spirit, what is it you're asking me for?